Welcome to Our Faith in Writing. I'm Charlotte Donlin. As a writer and a spiritual director for writers, I believe writing and reading help us belong to ourselves, others, God, and the world. Our Faith in Writing explores the intersection of writing and faith through conversations about the writing process, the reading life, contemplative practices, and more. Thanks for listening. You're about to hear an episode from one of my old podcasts that explores themes connected to our faith in writing. You may hear the Lists of Nine podcast or the Art and Faith Unplugged podcast mentioned during this episode, and that's okay. You're still here with us at Our Faith in Writing. Thanks again for listening. My guests today are Kaveh Akbar and Ashley Jones. Kaveh is the author of Calling a Wolf a Wolf and has received honors such as Levis Reading Prize. Did I say that right? I think so. Okay. (laughs) Um, I should have looked at this before I read your bio. And um, also multiple Pushcart Prizes. Born in Tehran, Iran, he teaches at Purdue University and in low residency programs at Warren Wilson and Randolph Colleges. Ashley M. Jones is a poet and educator in Birmingham, Alabama. Her latest collection is Reparations Now, which is available for pre-order and will be out on September 7th. Ashley is also, also directs the Magic City Poetry Festival. Um, we are here today to talk about Kaveh's next book, um, Pilgrim Bell, which is going to be out. Um, it's actually out today because we are making this episode live on his publication date. So happy publication date, even though it's not really here yet. Um, (laughs) Thanks to everyone for listening. And thank you for being here and joining me today. Thanks so much, Charlotte, for spending time with the book and for inviting us to be here. Thanks, Ashley. So I'm really looking forward to hearing both of you engage these poems. And that's what I would like to start with. Ashley, and I want to turn that over to you to lead this part of the conversation, if that's okay. And then later on, I will ask a few questions about the ways art and faith and doubt and mystery intersect for you as poets and as people who engage art from all sorts of genres. Thanks, Charlotte. So let me just do the awkward thing and ask you if Kava is the way to pronounce your name. That's how Navi <laughs> says your name. And Navi is the keeper of all knowledge. So Yeah, Navi is the keeper of all knowledge. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Yeah. Awesome. I just okay. didn't want to go this to whole hour. American, yeah, no, trans, shout out to <laughs> Transcendent American Poet Nabila Loveless, uh, whose Sons of Achilles is one of the best books published in the last four years. Yes. I will say that once more. Sons of Achilles is available from Yes, Yes Books by the poet <laughs> Nabila Lovelace. Yeah, this is actually like a Nabila Lovelace uh, just hype podcast. That's what we're exactly. all here to talk exactly. about is how much we love Sons of Achilles. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I will interrupt to say that anything you mention, poets, books, whatever, I will add to the show notes. So, Oh, I love that. Throw it in. Is it in proportion to how many times we reference it? Like if I reference Nabila Loveless's <laughs> Sons of Achilles five more times, does that mean you'll link it five more times? Well, I will just make the font bigger. Like Great. Right. Sensational. Yeah. Like so we'll have different size fonts for how often you name drop and book drop. Absolutely perfect. She was in our uh, our fantasy basketball league too. Neither she nor I won, but uh, 
we had a we that's had a good where you like imagine it right like it's not like actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're not actually playing yeah you have like uh you like pick the players who are on your team early on in the season and then like their performance in real life and so nate marshall okay. the poet nate marshall and i who wrote a book called finna last year which is wonderful and also wrote a book called wild hundreds which we were just talking about and i have co-managed a team for the past three years i think in this league and i think we finished fourth this year i forgot where nabi finished actually but well i was gonna say if this was like real on the streets basketball nabi would have won you know? oh a thousand percent yeah lockdown yeah. known lockdown defender nabila loveless right. high school phenom she she tries to underplay I, I i'm convinced that she was like she's like no i wasn't the best person on my high school team but i think that but she's clearly like, clearly she was yeah i think that she's being modest yeah hundred thousand percent yeah. So I mentioned Nabi because it's actually really funny and maybe like divine ordering as Nabi tends to to have. Mm -hmm. She was talking to me the other day. I was I shared with her that I interviewed the poet Fasil Mohoyuddin for the oh, Poetry yeah, Magazine yeah, yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Displaced Children of Displaced Children. Yes, yes. Another fantastic incredible book. Person and fantastic yeah. poet. Yeah. And she said, Oh, you should talk to Kava about religion and poetry. And I said, okay, just kind of like, well, maybe someday. And here yeah. we are <laughs> talking about it. Navi willed it into being. She does that literally with literally everything. Everybody yeah. she ever has known has like blown up, you know. Yeah. It's maybe a bad Can we shout out Fazl too? Because he's an incredible yes. poet that people sleep on. And his book yes. was absolutely incredible. And he's just one of the sweetest human beings that I've ever met. But Truly. that book, that book, I, f I forget who picked it. Someone maybe Kimiko Han picked it for for a prize and it was so 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 good and uh and he's just the sweetest humblest dude but then he writes these poems that are like you know blazing unreal the, yeah, yeah yeah like blazing the font off the paper he's incredible mm -hmm. he is so yeah so thank you to Navi for ordaining this meeting <laughs> yeah yes. shout out Navi <laughs> but yeah so I wanted to First of all, I'll say thank you for letting us read your book ahead of time, uh, which is exciting. I wanted to start off with poems about parents. Now, I, in general, am very concerned with parents because I love mine so much, but more mm -hmm. so now, I recently lost my dad. So I'm- I'm sorry to hear that. Sort of, yeah, thank you. I'm sort of trying to find ways to, to recreate him and poetry is maybe one of those things. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about that as I read a few of your poems, and I'll list them first, but I'll only ask you to read one of them. Reza's Restaurant, Chicago, 1997. Mm. Mother's I Once Was, and Cotton Candy stood out to me as I was reading. And I wonder if you might read Reza's Restaurant, and then we can sort of talk a little more about it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so sorry to hear about your father, but I'm glad that you have poems it's amazing what they can hold. I think a lot about, I, I promise I'll read the poem here in a second, but uh, I, I think a lot about how a lot of the times poems, like the medium of poetry sort of becomes the thing that we use to, like you said, sort of like conjure that person or conjure some part of that energy. I think about how like, if you imagine two prisoners separated by like a wall, right? And they can't see each other and they can't talk to each other but they can like tap on the wall 
right? And they can like through that, they can like tell that the other person is there. And then suddenly like the thing that separates them is actually sort of like the medium of communication, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, mm-hmm. that wall is like the actual way that they're talking to each other and that they're like affirming the other tr- person's place. And I think about poetry like that, the way that it, it is sort of like this wall, right? This language, mm-hmm. like you can't just like call the beloved departed anymore, right? But the, But by using the wall, but by using language, you can sort of like, suss out that person's energy right or reconstruct mm-hmm. something in that and and poetry has been really useful for me in that way too i don't i don't mean to put words in your mouth or whatever but but just to share some of my wondering around some of that some parallel thinking yeah are, are, are some of these poems going to be in your book that's coming out in september that uh that i want to shout out to no yes ish uh i wrote the book be- like way before my dad uh, passed away mm-hmm. so there's only one poem that is actively about that, but there are poems mm-hmm. about him in it. And I think I'm mm-hmm. trying to, maybe this is a, a world exclusive. I'm trying to write a memoir, trying. Oh, shit. So, I, well, look. I, I had to end <laughs> hey. That's awesome. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Well, it's something. I don't know what it is, yeah. but I'm trying. Yeah, that's great. That's great. It's hard. Prose is hard. I always feel it like I'm is. translating from poetry when I try to write in prose. Right? Like. I, I feel myself just every time I try to write an essay, so like I could just make this a poem. Like that would 100, be a thousand percent. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I just have to know more in order to write an essay. Like the poem mm-hmm. is like, I don't know anything and here's me not knowing it. You wanna not right. know it with me? You know, but an essay, I sort of have to be like, and I know that, it, you know, people will be like, oh, yeah. the essay comes from, you know, to attempt or to try. And then they're like, mm-hmm. you just try to understand. But I don't know, I feel like, I feel like everyone I know who writes an essay is like, in the year 1971, there were 30,000 chickens in the state of Georgia or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's just like, it's just like, they just know facts. My dad worked on duck farms my whole life. And so whenever we talk about fathers, I think about like poultry too. But yeah, I don't know. I, I just feel like I have to, I have to be a smarter person in order to, a smarter person than I am in order to write fiction or in order to write nonfiction. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm going to interrupt y'all here again, because my favorite essayists are poets. And actually I've mm. read beautiful essays that you've written. And yeah, I'm going to put in the show notes some of my favorite essayists who are poets i mean y'all are the i love that really know the words like will you link to some of your favorite ashley essays too yes oh <laughs> i will i'm gonna have all of the links in these show notes these show Can't notes wait. i mean that's an essay in itself yes yeah yes. <laughs> yeah there's um they just put out an edition of um paul salon's early poems there was the first one was called like breath turn turns night timestead or something like that and then like the same translator did the early poems, but the back pages of those anthologies are like a history textbook just in themselves. Just And all it is is like Salon's collected poems like split across two volumes, but the back pages of them, like the notes and footnotes or whatever are just like reading a completely different, just biography of Salon just through notes. It's really, really incredible the way that they did it. Sorry, I, I know that we're disambiguating wildly, but that's how conversation happens and I'm excitable. Uh, okay, I'll read Reza's Restaurant and then we can talk more about your memoir. Is that okay? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is, uh, this is Reza's Restaurant, Chicago, 1997. The waiters milled about filling sumac shakers, clearing away plates of onion and radish. My father pointed to each person, whispered, 
Persian about the old man with the silver beard, whispered Arab about the woman with the eye mole, Persian, the teenager pouring water, white, the man on the phone. I was eight, still soft as a thumb and amazed. I asked how he could possibly tell when they were all brown skinned, dark haired like us. Almost everyone in the restaurant looked like us. He smiled, a proud little smile, a warm nest of lips, said, it's easy. Said, we're just uglier. He returned to his lamb, but I was baffled, hardly touched my payment. I had big glasses and bad teeth. I felt plenty Persian when the woman with light eyes and blonde brown hair left our check. My father looked at me. I said, Arab? He shook his head, laughed. We drove home. I grew up. It took years to put together what my father meant that day. My father, who listened exclusively to the Rolling Stones, who called the Beatles a band for girls. My father, who wore only black, even around the house, whose umbrella made it rain, whose arms could cut chicken wire and make stew and bulged with old farm scars. My father, my father, my father built the world. The first sound I ever heard was his voice whispering bring the azan in my right ear. I didn't need anything else. My father cherished that we were ugly. So being ugly was blessed. I smiled with all my teeth. Okay, I just needed a moment of breath after the <laughs> poem was over. I had forgotten, Kava, how it feels to watch you read your poems. And I had forgotten that the poem actually is an action within you. Mm which does segue into the question I wanted to ask you. <laughs> I mean, I'll step back just a little. You were talking about the wall between you know, the, the people and how the, the yeah. wall is the communication. And as you were talking about it, I said, well, that's what prayer is for me. It is the wall. Mm. That's what a poem is for me. It is the yeah. wall and it is the prayer. And then thinking about the subject of the poem, not just the experience of poeming here with you, but the way that you talked about your dad in the piece, kind of resonates with me, like, because for me, parents are deities, even if they are mm -hmm. not good parents, they are still yeah. godlike in some way, yeah. or maybe devilish is the other word for that. And I find it interesting to try to capture that in a poem. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely think this poem and the others that I've mentioned do that, not only through like the, the movement of the poem down the page, the repetition, um, the choices of image, but just there's an energy around it, you know, where mm -hmm. we can sort of feel like this is a sacred moment and a sacred memory and a sacred um, relationship. So anyway, I just wanted to, to open the conversation about parents, about God, or even how um, the poem becomes a prayer and even how that prayer is sometimes fictionalized too. Because although this really maybe happened to you, as poets, we're always seeing things through this poetic eye, which we know is not like a real eye. It's mm -hmm. just like, it's more than real, I guess, in some way. Yeah, yeah, it goes out a little bit further than our own intelligences can or our own imaginations can, right? There's something in the technology of the poem that does a little bit more than we're able to do with the rhetorical language we're using to talk to each other right now, which is why we need the poems, right? It's why we use the poems. Yeah, I love I love everything that you just said. I think that for me, like a lot of people, my parents were, you know, I, I came to understand and I heard about God, you know, from the earliest 
times that I can remember hearing about anything, right? And so like, as I was coming to understand the world around me, you know, what models did I have for conceiving of God while I had my parents who seemed to control everything, right? And especially my dad in our household, you know, my dad really, really controlled everything, right? And, and so, you know, there's this line in this poem, right, whose umbrella made it rain. I really thought that, you know, because like when my dad would grab the umbrella and we went outside, it was raining, right? And so I was like, oh, my dad, my dad makes it rain by grabbing his umbrella. You know what I mean? Because like, why wouldn't I think that if you're a kid, you know, like, and so, yeah, and, and, and I like, too, that, you know, we, we have these ideas probably based on the Abrahamic faiths that dominate the Western world. I, I hate the term Western world because, it, like, the Earth is a globe and, like, Western world puts the center in Europe, right? Um, but, you know, the, the, the sort of this, the part of the world that we find ourselves on is dominated by sort of Abrahamic faiths. But, but I think that you know, if you think about like Hinduism or if you think about like the Greek gods, right. You have a whole cast of actors and many of them are mischievous or, or, you know, there are lots of Greek gods who are just scoundrels, you know, and the, the notion that, you know, the, the sort of supernatural divine necessarily must be, you know, the sort of infallibly good actor is a pretty, is a pretty narrow conception of that thing. Right. And I think that, our work maybe allows those divines to be a little bit more complicated and a little bit more real, you know? Yeah, I definitely think the way that we read those Abrahamic religions has always been like wrong, you know? Like I think, <laughs> which I mean, I'm sorry to the listening audience, nobody come after me, like I'm just a poet, um, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. But yeah, I definitely don't think that we're supposed to receive any story of God and conclude perfect is our standard or, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like that just doesn't make any sense, you know? Totally. And why would we be given these examples? Like you said, of our parents. I mean, for me, like my parents are literally like, you can't tell me that my parents aren't plucked from literal heaven. Like Mm -hmm. you just can't tell me that they're not, you know, Mm -hmm. but they are people too, you know, Mm -hmm. they are complicated and they are not always right or just. You know, and if you look at, I mean, I'm more familiar with Christianity just because of how I was raised. And even that, that's a whole other story because, I mean, I am from the South and I am Black, but I wasn't raised in the church and yet I'm Christian. It doesn't add up to most people, but like, you know, um, but anyway, um, you know, when you when you think about Old Testament God, that's a very interesting individual. I mean, I don't know how to really <laughs> you know, say it. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. to just go around smiting folks, like that's yeah. it's a lot. You know what I mean? And to need yeah. the Jesus character to come in to like be like, hey, hey, maybe not, you know. Yeah. That maybe well, shows it, us. Go ahead. Go totally, ahead. totally. Yeah, no, sorry, I didn't mean to I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you um, Yeah, I mean I, I think a lot about how you know, how many politicians have like claimed that they're trying to like walk in Jesus's footsteps or that they're trying to be godly or, you know, these are the words that they use and what they mean is infallible, right? Mm -hmm. What they mean is that they never waver, you know, that they hold firm convictions, but like Jesus doubted, you know, he had his moment of doubt on the cross. One of the last things that he ever did was, you know, saying, father, father, why have you forsaken me? You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Jesus, doubted on the cross, you know, the idea that like, 
I mean, you know, I come from the Muslim tradition uh, and Islamic tradition, right? And our, the sort of like precipitating miracle of our faith was that, or one of the precipitating miracles of our faith is that the Prophet Muhammad was just like an illiterate dude alone and fasting in a cave. And then the angel Gabriel came to him and said, read. And he's like, I'm sorry, I'm illiterate. And, and the angel Gabriel was like, read you know, and, and then he was able to read, right? But like he's, and he began transcribing what would become the Quran, right? But but he said to the face of an angel, like, I, I'm sorry, I can't, you know, I'm getting goosebumps mm-hmm. talking about this. You guys can see this because you can see me right now. The listener can't see it, but, but I mean, he, you know, doubt is such a intrinsic part of like, even these like great sort of like Abrahamic actors. And we've moved into a place where like doubt and confusion and like, uncertainty is somehow seen as like a weakness or somehow seen as like a deficiency in your faith and not like a load bearing part of your faith. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I I had one thought about the politicians who claim to be acting in the name of Jesus or whatever. And you, what words did you use that they're trying to be infallible or was that the word you used? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, infallible, certain. Yeah. And I would say also they're trying to be white. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so just, I mean, it's it's pretty complex of what they're trying to do, but part of it is this like evangelical white nationalism thing mm-hmm. that's woven through what they're calling faith. And I mean, maybe there is a way to describe like that's their faith. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's a there's a long history of conflating whiteness with authority, right? And often the that action is hidden to the actors who are perpetuating it, right? Um, they don't even realize that they're calling upon a credibility that they only perceive themselves to have by virtue of having been born a certain color, right? Which I think that yeah, I mean, you know, I you said it well. I think it's I think it's it's murderous, you know. Yeah. Just as uh just as a lot of other performances of certainty in our country and our species are murderous. Yes. Yes, I agree. Ashley, you were saying we were talking about doubt and you were I think the last sentence you said was that doubt is on your mind or always on your mind or something along those lines. Yeah. I was saying that doubt is on my mind. It has always been, but it is deeply on my mind now that, you know, grieving my father because it's very easy to, you know, how it's a part of faith for me. Cause I definitely have moments now where I'm like, why would this happen? Why did it have to happen? I can't sum it up with like everything happens for the good. I mean, that's something that I've seen. Like I have seen things turn out for the the good, but also this is terrible at the Mm. same time. But I also think faith and God can be bigger than those little sayings. Like there can be pain and there can also be God. Just like, you know, in the example that I gave before about parents being being like deities, like they can be good, but they can also be bad sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. that doesn't eclipse the goodness that they represent, if that makes any sense. But yeah, but yeah, I, I also wanted to ask you in writing about your parents, like, do you feel ever, um, I don't know if guilt is the word, but there's this feeling that you feel when you write about people that you love, 
but there's a feeling that I feel when I write about my family where I'm like, I don't mm -hmm. know if I'm getting this right mm -hmm. or if I even have the right to get it right or wrong, you know? I don't know if you feel that way. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard, right? Because my story is obviously so much their story and vice versa. And there are so many inflection points and points of divergence. I think, yeah, you know, that's a really beautiful and big question. I think that the poems are for me, like I said, sort of a technology for living, right? And as I write them because they are smarter than me and go further out ahead than me, um, it's not so much even just like the literal transcription of events that matters to me in them. It's the, it's the illumination that they make for me in my living, which is to say that when I'm reading a lot and writing a lot, I'm a better son uh, and I'm a better husband and I'm a better brother and uncle and teacher and, and all of these things. Right. And, and so, and I know this because they are, you know, they are, that technology for living for me, right? They're among the best technologies for living, devotional technologies, spiritual technologies that I know of, that I found in this life. And, and so I think that my responsibility is to write as well as I can, right? Because it, that directly makes me a better fellow in recovery and a better son and a better, and a better husband. And, and I can navigate you know, those things better and more clearly with the illumination that the poems make. Does that make sense? I hope that that doesn't feel like a cop out because it's the most honest way that I felt like I could answer the question. How about, I mean, how do you end up navigating it, right? How do you end up navigating telling these stories that aren't necessarily just your own? I love how you just threw that back at me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm interested. I'm interested. No, I I, uh, I think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing that I do is run everything by my family if I'm writing about mm -hmm. them, just for like insurance. Mm -hmm. But also I think that the stories that I'm telling, that all of us are telling, if we're telling them authentically, that they are ours. So mm -hmm. like my experience of my family is my experience, mm -hmm. even though it's somebody else's life I'm like witnessing, I'm the one witnessing it in the poem. Um, so I don't feel... yeah. I don't feel like I'm stealing something because it's mine already. And I do like this word technologies that uh, you use, like it's a technology for life. I've never really thought of the word technology related to poetry, but it's mm -hmm. totally true. Like I have also found that reading poems, writing poems and just doing poetry is the clearest way for me to just like understand life. Absolutely. And even, like this feeling, I don't know if this is a, you lived in Florida, I guess, for long enough to maybe pick this up, but there's this concept called catching the Holy Ghost. Maybe you've heard this before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I give, give me, I mean, I was in, I was in Tallahassee where people were talking about the Holy Ghost a lot, but, uh, but uh, illuminate a little bit. So sure. And I didn't grow up in a church, but I grew up near enough to them. Like my grandma had a church that I was able to go to and, you know, mm -hmm. I had a stint in church in college, but that's, we don't have time for that story. Cause it is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Charlotte seems happened. pretty amenable. Well, maybe I don't have time for that story. <laughs> <laughs> that's real, that's real. I'll take all stories you want to share, but oh, um, only the ones that. you're comfortable sharing. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, the short version is I grew up 
my parents told me to, you know, figure out what I believed in and to love all people and, you know, not to discriminate against anybody, not to make anybody believe anything like you do you, like your relationship with God is yours and that's right. the end. And so I wanted to be more normal as a poet and just as a weird person, I was always like, man, if I was just normal, my life would be so much easier. <laughs> yeah. And so as a freshman in college, I was really deep into one of these Christian groups on campus and mm -hmm. joined a church and it got really interesting when it was time to like go evangelize. And that was like the one thing my parents were like, this is what you don't do, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's, and so um, yeah. anyway, that's yeah. basically the story and that's, I'll just leave it there. Cause I'm supposed to be answering this question. Uh, oh, the Holy Ghost. So yeah. So the Holy Ghost is basically like receiving the, the like spirit of God, you know, in your body in some mm. way. So mm -hmm. sometimes people will, will shout. And basically mm -hmm. what that means um, you might shout, which doesn't mean that you're actually shouting, like shouting, at least in the black church means you start dancing mm -hmm. or you have just like this bodily, like reaction to receiving the Holy ghost. For me, receiving the Holy ghost feels like just this burst of otherworldly energy. And I don't get it always in church. I do get it almost always at poetry readings. Yeah. Yeah. So when that's I, real. Right. Yeah. So like when I watched you read your poem, mm. I was like, yes, this is the thing that I like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, that's great. I mean, that's that's incredibly moving. I mean, the hope is, you know, the reason that we go to see the poet read their books, right? I mean, like anyone can like take my book and read a poem out loud from it, right? Mm -hmm. Anyone can take one of your books and read a poem out loud from it. The reason that people ask you and I to read our poems out loud is that we wrote them right and there is some mm -hmm. hopefully there's some spark of whatever catalytic energy brought the poem into being you know that helped us wring it out of the ether or whatever however you want to say it. i mean it's hard to talk about the act of composition without minding the language of the supernatural right like even mm -hmm. the most skeptical writers are like you know the hours just flew by or like such and such a yeah. phrase just came to me right like you you use this language of the supernatural right and so there's the hope that, you know, when someone asks me to read a poem that I will come and not just like literally read the words off the page, but that I'll be able to connect with some, you know, some spark of what that sort of like not me energy was that brought the poem in the first place. Right. It's in other right. words, the poem isn't just my intelligence, you know, it's not just me sitting in front of a word document and like being like what would be a smart thing to write you know what i'm saying like right. there's something that is not me in the poem and that is what people are asking me to connect with that's what someone is asking you to connect with when they say will you come and read it da, 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 da. you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. um and and i think that the best readings are the ones where you feel like the person is the person who's reading the poet is unselfconscious enough to really allow that to happen. You know what I mean? Right. And, and that takes, that takes practice, you know, it takes practice and it takes like, you know, like the first, I used to do a lot of like open mics and, you know, little slams and, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I was super self-conscious for a long time. And like, and I was, I did a lot of open mics where it was just like, you know, at a bar at like 6 p.m. and everyone was there to like watch the game or whatever that was going on over my head. And so, you know, they were like actively, you know, maybe at best ambivalent 
or, you know, at worst actively hostile to my presence. And I still had to sort of win them over. Right. And, mm. and I don't know, I think that there's a thing where a lot of, a lot of people, like a lot of my students have come up, you know, just sort of doing poetry in college and then doing poetry in their MFAs or their PhDs or whatever, whatever. And so they never really had an audience to read to that wasn't there to see them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so they never kind of had to learn how to do that thing. Right. They never had to learn how to like win an audience or how to, or how to like show the audience that you're not just reading a font off of a piece of paper. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. I, I definitely don't trust poets or artists of any kind who don't have a stake in what they're doing. Yeah, so, yeah. Right, where it's just like, well, these are... That's a beautiful are, way to say it. Well, I mean, it, take, it took me a long time to figure out that vocabulary because I knew for a long time, whenever a poet would only focus on, well, here is all the craft and the craft is all that matters. <laughs> yeah. I would always think, well, isn't there something else? <laughs> you know, yeah, there's, there's yeah, got to yeah, be something yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful way to say it, though. Like, you want to feel the presence of stakes. Yes, you do. Because the stakes are high, you know, for mm -hmm. us. Writing mm -hmm. these things, receiving these things, mm -hmm. and then putting them on on paper or reading them aloud in bars. That's I, my worst <laughs> uh, venue. I don't like reading in places yeah. where something else happening. Um, yeah, a thousand percent, a thousand percent. Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's not, it shouldn't happen. You know what I'm saying? Like, you shouldn't have a poetry reading while there's, like, a Jets game going on over your head. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. But yeah, talking about the the heartbeat of the poem, which I think is my new favorite thing to say. I mean, not mm. to be confused with uh, the poem's heartbeat by Alfred Korn, the age-old <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. text. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, definitely text. not trying to get in on Alfred's, you know, coin. <laughs> um, I'm sure Alfred Korn's lawyers are going to be coming after us. You know, and they'd be wasting their time, honestly, because I have nothing to give. <laughs> yeah. You can have my, you can have my vast debt, my vast, right. <laughs> my vast empire of debt can be yours, Alfred Korn. Yes, I love it. I'm <laughs> sure Alfred Korn had a vast empire of debt too. It's Alfred yeah. Korn, after all. Yeah. And you don't have to put that in the show notes, Charlotte. Nobody needs to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might have to run the show notes by you. Um... Wow. For approval. These show notes are going to be amazing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure somewhere some like, you know, old head formalist is like, how dare you scorn the name of Alfred Korn. <laughs> scorn the name of Alfred Korn. This old head formalist can't even stop rhyming in their like hate letter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right. <laughs> all right. That's all for this episode of Our Faith in Writing. Thanks so much for listening and giving your attention to the ways writing and reading help us belong to ourselves, others, God, and the world. I'd love for you to visit us online at ourfaithinwriting.com where you can find more information about my spiritual direction for writers and other contemplative offerings, read essays and articles by writers who care about faith, and learn more about our partners and sponsors. I'd also love to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Charlotte Donlin. Subscribe to Our Faith in Writing wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review the show, letting us know how these conversations help you feel less alone in your writing life and your reading life.